Welcome back to the Valley to Peak Nutrition Podcast. This week, I'm joined by one of you. I'm joined by a gentleman named Mike Tennant. Mike is a listener of the Valley to Peak Podcast, and he had written in just after the first of the year to ask a question. It wasn't any typical question, though. He was asking some pretty specific things around the topic of artificial sweeteners. So specific that I felt like this would make a really good episode if we just set up a phone call, press record, and have this conversation. And I don't think that you'll be disappointed at all. Mike and I cover a host of different things all around the topic of artificial sweeteners. And really, it bleeds into conversation of health. Somehow, we get into the backcountry nutrition and also start talking about how to pick your favorite backcountry nutrition bar, and a few different topics on fueling well, depending on what type of pursuit you're doing in the mountains. Early season, late season, an easy hike, a hard hike. How does nutrition vary among each of those? It is a longer episode. You can break it up however you want, but I felt like I should make sure that you were able to listen to all of it because there are so many great nuggets in there. Mike leaves his contact information at the end of the show. So if you have any questions for him, which you'll hear a little bit of his story, you can always reach out to him to ask those as well. Without further ado, first I want to get an idea of like, if you could just tell folks kind of who you are, where you live, how how you got interested in Western hunting and and the mountains. And then we'll kind of lead into that first email, give you the opportunity to kind of provide some background information on that first email. And then obviously leading to the topic, but yeah, great place to start is just a brief introduction to who you are and where you're from, what you do. Yeah. So, you know, I grew up uh, in a small farming community in upstate New York and basically got into hunting as a, just what we did on the, on the farm. And then moved around the country, moved out to Seattle uh, via Florida and then back to Missouri. I I was out of hunting for quite a bit. Uh, There was a a tragic event in my family that kind of shook us to the core. And that really brought me back to my roots in in hunting. And I haven't haven't really got into that with anybody. But um, one of the things that I found comfort in and how I managed to work through that was basically grabbing one of my weapons, bow, rifle, going into the woods, because that's where I found comfort and allowed me to work through uh, that unpleasant component of, of, of uh, what happened. And so then you fast forward, I moved from Missouri out back to the Northeast and um, said, I want to go elk hunting. I've never been before. My family's been and said, you know what, why not? I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it my way and started getting into I, I kind of realized that if I was going to get into elk hunting, I was going to have to get into backcountry hunting. And at 51 years of age, it's probably not when you want to start backcountry hunting, but that's what I found myself doing. So I got a full of the EXO crew and, and talked you know, with, with Mark a bit and, and, and learned a lot from a lot of different individuals. And that sort of paved the way to when I started, I was running about 185 in terms of weight. And I'm, I'm like, five six on a good day and i was getting beat down when just carrying 100 pounds and so that started this whole idea of i need to be in better shape what can i do there and it sort of led me to to you a little bit and so 
I've dropped a lot of weight and, and have to buy new pants now because I can't fit in my pants and sort of, I, I blame you to some extent, but I think that's a good problem to have because I'm in better shape all around. And so that's kind of how I got into the, the Western hunting scheme is, you know, I've hunted whitetail all my life and then sort of uh, moved away from hunting and then drew back to it and then said, yeah, let's go out West and chase elk. And so. I think it's a great, I mean, I, I wish that we had just this gigantic amount of time where we could cover it because you sent me this email kind of right after the first of the year and you laid a great foundation out of kind of how you found Valley to Peak. And, you know, for anybody that's listening, you did this on your own. You didn't work with me. You took some information and you completely ran with it. So this is not like a commercial for Valley to Peak. In fact, the topic that we're going to cover has absolutely nothing to do with Valley to Peak. And I'm going to funnel this under like a listener Q&A because you were a listener and you asked a question. And as you asked this question, which I'm going to give you the opportunity to kind of explain some background leading into this conversation here in a minute. But as a as a as you asked this question to me, I started thinking, I thought, well, man, this is a really good question. And typically, Lindsay covers Q&A. But as I dove more and more into the email, there were some pretty deep specificities in here that I knew... I don't think the conversation we're about to have could have came out of a conversation with Lindsay and I. So I thought clearly this guy has got some very intricate details about this that he's wanting to know about, which I perceived as what a lot of people want to know about. So I said, Hey, why don't you just come on? And rather than me answering your email, why don't we just record this? We've never talked about this you know, together prior to this. So this is really our first time covering it. And I have found that that is the best way to capture it versus having a bunch of conversations leading into the leading into a, a recording. I don't want to sit here and ramble, but just to give listeners some background as to how you and I linked up. And I think number one, I want to applaud you for the fabulous work that you did on your own. I think that that's awesome. Number two, thank you for listening to the podcast. Number three, thank you for coming on here. I know it can be intimidating, but now let's get into the bulk of your question. There are a lot of ways that we can tackle this. I know that you've got some specifics you want, but I'm just going to read kind of what your initial question was, and then we can go from there. Does that sound good? You said in episode 34 with Lindsay, you said safety concerns over non-nutritive sweeteners or what many people know as artificial sweeteners are overrated. Can you elaborate on that? And then you went into some details, you gave me some studies, and you gave some other bullet points. So let's set the stage at that question and then give you the opportunity to ask anything that you want based off of that. And so I think where I was going with that is uh, when we talk about NNSs and, and the, um, whether they're safety concerns, there's, there's something, two things that come out of it with me. One is, what do we really mean by safety or safe the safe mean without any negative impact and so when i look around and i see a lot of people on that they're, they're using artificial sweeteners i'm not seeing healthy fit people i'm not seeing any anything any different than you know me in fact sometimes they look like maybe they're gaining weight or and, and so how is that related to a healthier individual and so you know the safe mean um cancer-free, the safe mean that it is uh, better for you in, in a health perspective. And, and that's kind of where I was going with it. It's like, I, just because something hasn't been proven and demonstrated to, to be carcinogenic or genotoxic, does that mean that it's safe and we should be using it? 
So just to back up a little bit, you use some acronyms in there and some bigger words like genotoxic and carcinogenic. And really at the core of what you're asking is at what point do we consider, why are we considering artificial sweeteners safe? Is it because there is a certain dose in which they become toxic and then anything below that they're considered safe? Or are we calling them actually healthy? From a, from a scientific standpoint, when you read about artificial sweeteners and even going back to my comment where I said that the safety concerns over non-nutritive sweeteners are overrated, largely has to do with dose. There's a term that they use in science called GRAS, grass certified, generally recognized as safe. And really what that is from a scientific standpoint is anything below this dose is considered generally safe for the population. My comments were that you read a lot of messages in culture about how all of these things are going to kill you and how all of these things are causing all of these problems and how all of these are, you know, this, that, and the other. A lot of that information, a lot of those headlines are rooted in bad science. I'll give you an example. Take, take the artificial sweetener saccharin, which is found in, you know, diet sodas and diet other things. In 19, I believe it was 77, government banned it, saying that it was carcinogenic. In 2000, um, President Clinton removed that and basically allowed it to be in our food again. The reason behind that was that they found that the study that they had conducted on it that told them that it was carcinogenic or that it was toxic for humans was in a dose amount that would be equivalent of 800 cans of diet soda per day. So inconceivably high that we really can't say whether or not it's, it's toxic. So back to your question, does that mean it's good? Well, certainly not, right? I mean, I certainly don't think that that's the case where you're you're having a conversation of is is the dose to a point where we can call it healthy or are we just trying not to kill people? Yeah, it, it makes sense. From my perspective, I'm, I'm glad that that there are artificial sweeteners for people that need them that are diabetics. You know, we absolutely can't have sugar. For the rest of us, are we maybe, I don't know, misusing is probably not the right word. It's the only thing I can come up with. But are we using it in a way that we probably don't need to? And, and how does that impact our overall health? I, I don't think it's like, I don't think anyone is putting this under the column of healthy, right? Like saying this is a health food. This is something you should absolutely go out and include as a part of your diet if you're not already. Now, if you wanted to branch off of that topic, you could say the same about wine. For years, people had said, oh my goodness, the resveratrol in wine is so beneficial that if you're not a drinker, you should all of a sudden become one because the benefits are so high. We know that's not true. We know the absolute best thing from a health standpoint is complete abstinence from alcohol. So even the recommendations now are, okay, if you're not a drinker, don't become one because of these purported benefits from wine or grapes or dark chocolate or whatever. So I don't think that it's really a conversation where any organization is saying, these are health foods and if you're not already partaking in them then you should begin to do so there are studies though that do report benefits in several ways right now i want to i want to preface this by saying that my role in reading research and disseminating that research and making recommendations for clients as well as doing this podcast is to be very 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 objective 
people do not care about my opinion personally. They care about what does the science say? So I always have to view it through, through that lens. When you look at the science, what they do find is this. They find that for anybody who is diabetic, for anybody who is overweight, for anybody who does have trouble, let's just call it with discipline and declining things that are high in sugar, reducing their sugar intake. When you exchange things that have artificial sweeteners in them as a replacement for things that are sugar filled, we find those people lose weight. As a result of that weight loss, their health conditions improve. Most research would say that if your average person lost 10% of their body weight, nearly every health outcome and every chronic disease, the reduction of developing that disease or the extent of that disease goes down. Their health improves, in other words. Weight loss is like the number one drug that you could have. Now, like I think a, a great example of that is soda. If a person goes from drinking six a six-pack of Coca-Cola or Dr. Pepper per day, and all of a sudden Coke Zero or Dr. Pepper Zero helps them reduce their calorie intake by over 600 calories per day. And as a result, that, re that results in weight loss, thereby their health improves. That doesn't mean that artificial sweeteners are a health food, but it is helpful in that situation and that individual's health did improve. Now, could we make the argument, man, it would be better for that person to drink water? Sure. But I'm sure that person would love to drink water too. But as we know, we make food choices not based off of what we know. There is a little thing in our brain that is constantly compelling us to want something, right? And it's the inconvenience of saying no that sometimes artificial sweeteners can help make that more bearable for someone. And in those situations, there are a lot of studies, even in that, that, that World Health Organization document that you'd put out that show that you sent me that show there's a lot of value in that in helping people lose weight now that same research article and we see this across the board and this alludes to the question that you had started with we find over a long period of time years that is not true most people are overweight who consume non-nutritive or artificial sweeteners and to your point or your question, it is, well, how can that be? There's no calories in that. If they're consuming more of that, it seems like they would be quote unquote healthier or weigh less or be leaner or whatever. What we find is this. We find that uh, from a behavioral standpoint, right? And I'm going to get to the science that I think is screwy and why this, this whole topic bothers me and why I made that question or why I made that comment about, I think that it's overrated. What we find is that people know those, those, those items and those sodas and those foods or whatever are zero calorie. So in their mind, it gives them permission to eat more. So they continue to overconsume food while drinking zero calorie or while eating zero calorie foods with artificial sweeteners in them. Now, when you read the headlines on Facebook that are non-scientific by some sort of a popular social media guru, no science background, the articles and the headlines read, artificial sweeteners make you gain weight. And here's the study that proves it. Look at all of these people when studied over years that say, oh, they've gained so much weight eating artificial sweeteners. It's the artificial sweeteners problem. They are what make you gain weight. Artificial sweeteners make you gain weight. That's what the headline says. 
And the reality when you read the study is no, excess calories made that individual gain weight, not artificial sweeteners. They happen to also have artificial sweeteners, but you have to remember that correlation is not causation. You have to remember that. And that is what freaking bothers me so bad about this topic, about carnivore, about keto, about all of that is you get a little bitty twinge of truth, spin it, and the whole world takes off with it. When in reality, that is not at all what the science reads like. So my comment going back to that podcast where I said, oh, well, I think there are, I think that the, the fear is overrated was not rooted in, oh, I think artificial sweeteners are the best thing on the planet. Everybody who's not doing it should do it. You're missing out on all of these great benefits. Not at all. Not at all. But it is overrated because much of the fear is not really fear. It's it's unwarranted. It's unjustified based on emotion from some sort of a, a social media headline somewhere that has said artificial sweeteners cause X, Y, and Z type of an issue. When in reality, that's not true. Yeah. Uh, so I guess what I'm I'm trying to understand is that the, the the what you're getting at here is that it's our behavior that's more to blame for um, the outcome rather than what we are putting in our mouth. And I think that's, it's, it's in alignment with the, the, the poisons in the dose, so to speak. And so if we control what we are eating or how much we are consuming, the issue is, is generally it resolves itself. It's not more, it's not, it's not an issue. Is that- well, yes. I mean, because it, it's from a behavioral standpoint, when you read a lot of these studies, like it's either, it's either going to be tied to something to do with weight or something to do with blood sugar or what the studies often call glycemic control, right? And almost always when you look at those two things in the context of artificial sweeteners, any negative outcomes really have nothing to do with the sweetener itself. It's generally because of a behavioral thing outside of that, right? Like, so for, for example, person goes to McDonald's, they order something, they typically may order a diet soda, now, or I'm sorry, they typically may order a regular soda, but now they order a diet soda. They recognize that zero calories. So since they are, quote, saving calories from the soda, go ahead and throw the two apple pies on there. Glycemic control response to the two apple pies. That person happened to have an artificial sweetener. Oh, look, artificial sweeteners raise blood, raise blood glucose. The very nature of artificial sweeteners and why they can help diabetics lose weight and control blood sugar is because the body literally doesn't recognize it in the gut. There is no calorie. There is no glycemic response, right? Now, you can cherry pick studies all over the place to say and read whatever narrative you want, right? What matters, and this is true across the board for all studies, when you study big groups of people over long periods of time in a very randomized way, you get the best data to actually tell you if the outcome that you're looking for is true or not. So sure, I could go dig into the research and find a study that tells me anything with the population of one from a 42-year-old female that lives in Pennsylvania. I don't care about that. What I care about is what happens to big groups of people over long periods of time on a certain topic. And is it randomized, right? Are all the variables controlled to the point of where we can really sit down and say, the cause of this problem was this product, was this food, was this whatever. And then we can really start to make our recommendations based off of that. 
to this point, we don't have anything that says that. So my argument is definitely not, oh, artificial sweeteners are an absolute health food. Anybody should, you know, you should, you should absolutely go for those. My argument is that the fear that you often read about is simply not true too, right? And so, yes, I have seen situations where a person has a very difficult time not drinking regular soft drinks. They switch to diet and begin losing weight. All of a sudden, their blood markers start to go down, their blood sugar gets better, and that allows them to continue to make healthy habits. So in that person's in that person's situation, can I say that artificial sweeteners were bad and they never should have done that? No, I have a hard time saying that. I have a really hard time saying that. Now, again, like I don't want to beat a dead horse, but could we say, oh, well, they would have been better to choose sparkling water? Well, yeah, I guess so on a movie, but that's not real life for a lot of people. We don't eat based off of what we know. We eat off of comfort, off of emotion, off of availability, off of triggers in our head, off of nostalgia. We make food decisions based off of everything but we, we know, <laughs> right? If it was simply that easy to tell someone to, oh, well, that food's bad, don't eat it the whole world would be, there would be no weight problems, but that's not why we do it. Controlling our intake and our choices is extremely difficult to do. And you've always got to help a person find strategies that are going to work for them to, like you said, yes, help control that dose. So I guess that kind of leads into another question, which is around the idea that artificial sweeteners are much sweeter than sugar. Kind of alluded a little bit to we, we what we consume to a large extent is influenced by our taste. And I, mean, I think that's pretty undeniable. If, we don't, if it doesn't taste good, we're not going to eat it, right? Is there some sort of a link to the over-sweetness of an artificial sweetener in some sort of influence or incremental change in our behavior that maybe we don't even perceive. And then over time, how does that tie in? And there's there, there something to that. What you're asking then is, is does, does, consuming, does consuming fake sugar or artificial sweeteners give us a preference then towards sweet stuff that then causes us to want it even more? Sure. Right? That, it's, it's, it's an excellent question. So Artificial sweeteners are zero calorie sweeteners. They're really not. They have the same number of calories per unit that any other carbohydrate like sugar does. What's different about them though is the concentrate. They are so sweet that we then add water. So they become so, um, they become so, uh, diluted that there's no calories. So in other words, you could use one little tiny drop in a large batch of something and get the same sweetness as teaspoon upon teaspoon upon teaspoon upon teaspoon of regular sugar. So there's no calories because it's so diluted, right? Which goes to your point, is the inflation of that sweetness causing us to want something, you know, causing us to want sweetness even more? I think that you'll have to ask, I mean, that's going to be number one, an individual by individual basis, right? As to whether or not that's actually happening. I do think that the frequency in which someone has that will play a role in that. But I don't think that it's outside the realm of, of, of possibility for that to be true, right? But I also think that that's true. It's not just artificial sweeteners, right? It's it's anything else. And I'll, I'll pick on myself here and use myself as an example. When I weighed 270, I ate really whatever I wanted. I went pretty 
off the deep end totally changed my intake and, and diet whenever I started losing weight. Maybe the most fascinating thing of all the weird things I saw in those nine to 12 months of losing 140 pounds was how much my taste changed. All of a sudden, like fruit went from being just this watery nothing to extremely sweet and flavorful because I stopped eating all other sweets at that time, right? And all of a sudden, like berries were like ice cream to me. So you're, it is true that your taste preferences do change and it is plausible to say, okay, if someone didn't consume any sugar and if they also stopped consuming all artificial sweeteners, that their taste preferences for high sugar foods would then also go down. Is that possible? Yes, it is. Potentially, there certainly potentially could be an influence there in, in our food choices. You know, I think I see that in myself or I lost a lot of weight. I was having six to eight cups of coffee a day, but it wasn't coffee. It was cream and sugar with a little bit of coffee. And then when I made a decision that I have to get shaper or if I went out on the mountains, I was going to get crushed by trying to pack an elk out. I stopped using cream and sugar in my coffee cold and, and, and choked down black coffee straight. And I couldn't stand it at the time because it was so bitter. And, and now it doesn't bother me at all. And so I think there's, you know, a lot to that our tastes evolve over time so to speak yeah they definitely do and again like it's it, it's not it's not a question of are these products considered a health food i i, I mean i think yeah. anybody who says that is is crazy <laughs> but i also don't think that it is nearly as volatile as many people would want you to believe now yes like i say all of the time like you've referenced here you also referenced it in the email the dose is always going to make the poison, right? So there is an upper limit where I think, okay, look, if you're doing it that much, you probably need to tone that down. I'll pick on my dad. My dad, uh, he used to drink a couple, he would, he would drink probably a full two liter of diet, diet Coke every day, uh, a full two liter every day. That's a situation where I'm like, dad, you need to relax on that. That's, <laughs> that's not like a 12 ounce with, with lunch. Now, if you look at what science has said the tolerable upper limit is, right? Like what's the what, what's the total amount we should be aiming for per day or less? It is so crazy high that I would venture to guess there's probably no one and if so very few people in the US hitting that. It's like 75 packs of equal per day, 800 packs of sweet and low per day. 800 sodas per day. No, no one's drinking that. Now, you will get a lot of people who argue that, oh, okay, well, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't drink Splenda. I don't drink aspartame. I don't do any of that, but I do, I do take stevia because it's all natural. Well, the tolerable upper, upper limit of stevia is even less than those. It's like 27. So even these like natural things aren't necessarily completely without their risk. And I think that that's even a part of this bigger conversation with all these polarizing diets and polarizing topics within within the world of nutrition is you've always got to pick. I mean, unless you are or unless you are planning to grow your own garden and live off of the land, like you are not going to be able to nail every one of these crazy recommendations everyone is saying. Now, we can make the argument that not having any artificial sweetener is the easiest of all to avoid. But if you start following all of these things, you're going to now be having no nightshades. You should also be eating no oatmeal because evidently that's killing everyone now. 
And you've got studies that are now showing a meat-only diet increases cardiovascular risk regardless of whether it's lean or not. But then on the other side of that, you've got people saying that plants are killing you, so you need to stop eating all plants, like if you look at the lion's diet and the carnivore diet. So it is no wonder people are confused. At the end of the day, we find this. The more often you choose nutrient-dense whole foods, you control the dose to where your weight is at a point that it is not driving chronic disease, you are doing just about everything that you possibly can for a good, solid, long life. And I would not spend or, I mean, to be frank with you, I would not waste my time going down these other little side rabbit trails of like, God, maybe I should do that. No, oh no, this is the new one. Maybe I should do this or maybe that's, maybe I should do that. I would, I would find what works for you and I would just be incredibly consistent. But, but to your point, and I do believe you are right, if we're saying that there's no real, there, there's no real health benefit to be conferred from artificial sweeteners, it seems like an easy thing to let go. Unless you are that small category in which you really struggle to manage your weight without helping you, without using these as a help to help get you off of the stuff that's actually driving your weight up, which is sugar, right? Then you can make the argument for those group of folks, this is worth considering because we know the best medicine is weight loss. So if these are pushing you towards weight loss, effectively what you're saying is these are improving your health. As crazy as that can sound, that is what the literature shows. Now, you do have to reconcile how are you going to fix this long-term because long-term these studies are not in your favor. Long-term these studies are saying that eventually at a year, six years, 10 years, et cetera, you end up letting those good choices go, but you keep drinking the diet sodas. You can't, it can't be an exchange one or the other. It has to be complete substitution, right? So again, really complicated topic that you could go down a million different rabbit holes, but a conversation worth having. You know, we talk about natural sugar. Is there is is there a risk or a benefit associated with natural using natural sugar versus an artificial sweetener? Meaning, is sugar like addictive? Is not the right word, but does it have more of an addictive profile than something like an artificial sweetener? Or is that just crazy talk? What you'll hear and what what people are really asking when they ask that question, because it's a question that comes up a lot, is does your brain really trigger like it's heroin? I think that is very dramatic, right? That is a very dramatic picture whenever you start watching documentaries based off of this. We just watched, um, we actually had a listener write in about the documentary called What the Health, which basically says, if you touch meat, you're going to die in any day. So I had not seen it, but he was asking because he loved hunting. He's like, do I need to stop hunting? So Lindsay and I bought the movie, we watched it, and we're going to do a podcast entirely on that coming up soon. The, the, the idea from those documentaries and what you're asking as far as sugar goes, it's like your brain lights up like it's heroin. It may light up because it enjoys it. It's that simple. We are wired from birth to want salty and sweet. You will, you will be hard pressed to find people who aren't wired to want both of those things. So does your brain get excited when it gets that? Yeah, the same way it gets excited when you get a hug from somebody you really like. The same way it gets excited when you get a call from a girl in high school that you think is really cute and asks you to the dance. It's a pleasure thing. It's gotten, it's not this, I'm reading, there's there's posts on Rockslide now about sugar being like the devil's advocate and all these crazy things. You're, you like it. 
right? It's it's that simple. So I don't know that we can call it, you know, any more addictive than other. But to get get let's get to the root of your question here, which is is there anything wrong going natural? Because here's the here's the comment I hear all the time from clients. My doctor told me it would be better for me to drink a regular soda with real sugar than to ever touch a diet soda. Maybe if your calories are controlled and they still push you towards weight loss, right? So if, but however, we, we don't find that. We find that high sugar consumptions generally lead to excess calorie intake, which generally leads to a person being above a body weight that they either want to be at or a body weight that decreases their risk of developing a disease with some of the big ones being cardiovascular disease and, and diabetes, right? So what happens when you reduce your intake of that, you reduce the calorie intake, person loses weight and the health improves, right? So, you know, I, which is better, I think is kind of what you're asking. Again, it's always going to be found in the dose. And now the other piece of this is um, kind of what you're asking is, um, you know, is one better or the other? Is there one benefit, is one beneficial over the other? Obviously, we talk all the times and are huge advocates for gummy bears, right? Which is sugar laden crap, according to many people. And we've gotten a lot of questions from listeners about like, will you cover the topic of gummy bears and insulin sensitivity? And yes, we are going to cover that too. You have to remember though, too, sugar is fuel. Carbohydrates are fuel. And so since the majority of the people that listen to this are interested in improving performance, they're interested in doing better on the mountain, they're interested in not just surviving a trip, but loving it and anticipating going back, sugar is also fuel. So if you try to eat gummy bears that are sugar-free, not only will you have a very difficult time making it back to the truck from the backcountry, you will also be on the side of the road pooping your brains out from all those sugar alcohols, which are indigestible carbohydrates in which you, you, you poop out, right? So this is a huge conversation and, and nutrition is, and like I often say, the best answer that I could ever give anyone is it depends because it always depends on the case. It depends on the dose. It depends on the person. It depends on the scenario. It depends on the location. It depends on all of these things. So we could make the argument in some cases where sugar is a great option to have in the right scenario, under the right circumstances, packing out an elk from Montana after you've killed your first bull. I will tell you that gummy bears are worth their weight in gold. It's how I can get my wife to continue to, to go up the mountain, pack stuff out and not kill me. And so it works great. Now, I think, I think that as a part of that, because again, for some reason, it's, it's, it's challenging to sometimes see balance in conversations like this. Right now, I'm in my office. I've been in here most of the day. Most of my days are that. Do my exercise in the morning. I try to do a couple of walks. I do not have a bowl of gummy bears next to me in the office. In fact, I don't touch gummy bears unless I'm out on the mountain. So I am not advocating... People sit in their office and just be pounding these high sugar foods all day. There is truly probably nothing more effective than eating nutrient dense, single whole foods, right? That is true. Now, that is, should also be balanced with the message of, of, of enjoying your life and finding things that you can be consistent with. And like the, the reference that I use the most often is pizza night with your kids. Just because the, you know, one of the best choices that you can make as far as satiety and making sure that you're full throughout the course of the day and you're not having drops in energy is from single ingredient foods, 
doesn't mean that you need to now skip pizza night with your kid on Thursdays. That is not killing you. That is not inducing cardiovascular disease. That is not causing diabetes and insulin resistance. It's pizza night with your kid, right? It's, it's that simple. It's it. Our health, our overall health is the accumulation is the accumulation of many decisions over months and years and lifetimes. It is not a single Thursday of movie night for pizza night with our kids. And oftentimes we kind of confuse, we kind of forget that it's not really, oh, I can only be one or the other. I'm only team, you know, keto or I'm team carnivore or I'm team. No, it's, it's your life. It's the dose. It's the context of your personal need and what your goals are. And then it's, it's enjoying it because if you enjoy it, you're going to be consistent. And if you're consistent, you're going to have progress. It's that simple. I've got a confession to make. I lied. I said that we would do this all in one part, but as I started to edit it, I realized this would be not only a really long episode, but there would be so much information to absorb that it could seem overwhelming. Not to mention the topics are polar opposites as we start to dive into the second part, which will get released next week. You'll see that it's about backcountry nutrition and how to plan based on weather and temperature and miles and elevation, which is completely different than what we had just covered. So I decided to make it two parts and you'll get a bonus episode that we will release next week, part two with Mike. If you have any questions about anything you heard us say today, please send those over to info at v2pnutrition.com. You can send your questions to that same uh, email address and we would love to cover those on a future episode. We appreciate you all so much. I think one of the coolest things about Hunt Expo was the number of people that came up and said, hey, I listened to your podcast and I really enjoy it. So thank you. Thank you for stopping to uh, to let us know that in the midst of a busy day and the chaos of Hunt Expo. And thank you if, if you weren't there and you listen. Thank you for listening. We, we truly appreciate it. We will see you again back here next week for another new episode. Have a great week, everybody.